So if you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're in John 19, and we're going to look this morning at verses 31 through 42. The title for the sermon this morning is called Dead and Buried. John 19, we'll start in verse 31 and finish this chapter together this morning. John 19 again, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, that the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read your account of the death and the burial of your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the apostle John, who inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded these words for us so that we might know exactly what you want us to know about the narrative of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today as we study this passage, that you would awaken our hearts and our souls to be greatly encouraged that as we know already that Jesus did not stay dead and he did not stay in the grave, but on the third day he arose and it brings us great joy to think of the resurrection and yet we know without a death and a burial, there would be no resurrection. And so help us to learn what you want us to learn and apply it to our lives from this passage this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been discussing over the last several weeks, we've looked at a lot of the details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about how so many prophecies, 332 prophecies, were fulfilled at the first advent of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that a lot of those prophecies, dozens of them, were also fulfilled at the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. In fact, all the way from Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion, the very first prophecy 
of the gospel, where Satan would bruise Christ's heel, but he would crush his head, all the way from Genesis up to Jesus himself, gave very clear prophecy of how he would die and how he would be also raised on the third day. And these prophecies are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, every single one. Now this morning, I also want you to know that the timing of Jesus' death was also predicted. You might remember in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is what theologians call the 70 weeks prophecy. And that 70 weeks prophecy prophesies the exact year that Jesus Christ would be crucified. Out of those 70 weeks, that first week was 49 weeks whenever uh, Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem. He rebuilt the wall, but he also took time to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then there was a decree that was given by Artaxerxes to uh, Nehemiah in 445 BC. And after that first seven um, periods of time, 49 years, then we add to that 62 weeks, which is three, 483 years. I know that's just a lot of math to you, but if you study prophecy, it's pretty fascinating because it's a very exact science. And if you add the first 49 years plus the, 400 and, uh, the 483 years together, then you get the exact date, which brings us up to about 30 AD, where Jesus was crucified. What I'm trying to say to you is this. This was no accident. This was not just something that happened to happen at this certain time. God planned the birth of his son on the day he was born. And in the same way, God planned the death of his son on the day that Jesus died. It was predicted it would happen this very year. It was predicted that it would happen on Passover week. In fact, it's going to happen, as we'll see this morning, on the day of Passover itself. And so what we're looking at this morning is not only was the timing of Jesus's death predicted perfectly, not only was the method of his death predicted perfectly, him dying on a cross, but we also see three feasts whose symbolism are all fulfilled on the Friday on the Saturday and on the Sunday of Jesus' death and resurrection. The high priest's practice of killing the Passover lamb had been practiced for over a thousand years. And on Friday of the year that Jesus died, the Jews celebrated the Passover by killing a lamb for the temple sacrifice. Jesus the Lamb of God died at that exact same time in order to take our sins upon his body on the cross. Thus, Jesus was the Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And at the Last Supper, Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 26, 26 to 28, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup from which they had given thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so what we're seeing is that the Passover meal became the Last Supper, which today for us we practice as communion. And so Jesus fully fulfilled the Passover feast when he became the Passover lamb. That happened on Friday. 
But on Saturday, there's another symbolic feast that was fulfilled. This you may not know. And this would be the feast of the unleavened bread. The year that Jesus died on the Saturday while his body is in the grave, the Jewish Sabbath was also the day that the Jews celebrated the feast of the unleavened bread. And this feast reminded the Jews of the bread that God provided for the Israelites when they left Egypt. In fact, consider some of these parallels between the feast of the unleavened bread and of Jesus's death. In order to have bread, wheat must die in order to bring a crop. Similarly, similarly, Jesus had to die in order to be buried and in order to bring newness of life. Unleavened bread was made without yeast during the Passover when it happened. As you remember, they left Egypt. You don't have time to knead the dough with yeast. And so they left quickly. And so that bread had no yeast. That's where it came from. The unleavened bread is now Jesus Christ who has no yeast. He has no sin. In him, there is no sin. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was sinless. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8 says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may have a new lump as you are really unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what I'm saying is the New Testament brings these Old Testament feasts into the new covenant. And as we've already seen, the Passover lamb is Jesus. Now we're seeing the unleavened bread is also Jesus, who is without sin and who is without any malice. And then on Sunday, we see the feast of the first fruits that were practiced there during Passover week. On Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, the day after his death, the Israelites practice the celebration of the feast of first fruits, which in this case celebrated the beginning of the barley harvest. The Israelites returned to God the first part of everything that they had been given in gratitude to God who had provided all that they needed. And what we're seeing now on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, that Jesus is the first fruit. That when Jesus came back to life, if you will, bodily on the day of the resurrection, he fulfilled this idea of this feast. All these feasts were pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the Messiah. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what I'm saying to you this morning is, how amazing is that? How cool is that to think of Jesus as not only being the Passover lamb on Friday, but being the unleavened bread on Saturday and being the first fruit on Sunday? How can we not see today the beauty of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ? He is the anointed one. He is the lamb of God. He is the only one who could ever take away your sin debt. It was prophesied about in old. It came into fruition when Jesus came and it ought to fire us up today. Amen? We ought to be excited, even though we're talking about the death and the burial of Jesus. The resurrection's coming. All right, we're going to get there next week or the week after. But the point is, all of this fulfills Scripture exactly the way it was planned. And so here's what I want to do for us this morning. As you know, we followed a little bit through this study, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, 
and was buried. It's in the Apostles' Creed. We've already looked at Jesus was crucified. Today, we're going to look at the fact that he died and that he was buried because those are important things to consider. These are facts of the gospel. Without a death and without a burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have not fulfilled all of the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. And you understand that if he didn't fulfill every single prophecy, then he's not God. And the Bible can't be trusted. So every single part of the Bible, including his death on the cross, the burial of Jesus in the tomb, are essential to our faith. These two facts are cardinal doctrines of Christianity which means if you don't believe in these two facts, you're not a Christian. You can't just say, well, Jesus was a nice guy, and maybe he was crucified, maybe he wasn't, but I don't really know about the fact that he died. And I don't know if I really believe that he was actually placed in a tomb with a big stone rolled across it for three days. I don't know if I can believe that. Then if you can't believe that, then you don't know Christ. And so this morning, it's important for us to understand these incredible doctrines of death and burial as recorded in Scripture so that we could see how the resurrection is so glorious. Are you ready? Two points this morning. The first in your outline, if you have one, or you can watch on the PowerPoint, is the death of Jesus on the cross. And that first blank, if you are taking notes, simply says, his body was not to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Look at verse 31. The first part of it says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. Let's just pause right there. Many of the Jews from Galilee, which included Jesus and his disciples, had already practiced the Passover meal on Thursday night. They were from Galilee. Some historians say there wasn't enough room in Jerusalem to practice the Passover altogether, so some could do it on Thursday night. Some could do it on Friday night. The Galileans, Jesus had already done his Last Supper, fulfilling the Passover meal on Thursday night. The rest of Jerusalem is now going to do it on Friday night because they're there in their hometown of Jerusalem. And so on this particular Sabbath is a high day, as the scripture says, because this isn't just any Sabbath. This is the Sabbath kicking off the Passover week. And so it was heightened in the Jewish leader's concern. And so they wanted to get the bodies, Jesus' body, the two thieves on either side of him, off of the cross because of the warning that was given in the Torah. In the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah or the Pentateuch, we have Deuteronomy chapter 21, 22 through 23, which says this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and is put to death. Now, we know Jesus did not commit a crime punishable by death, but they said that he did by claiming to be the Son of God, that he had committed blasphemy. So in their mind, it was capital punishment, but we know Jesus never sinned. Either way, Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, if this man was punished by death and he was put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so now we're seeing what's going on. The Jews here, the Pharisees, the other Jewish leaders have realized that Jesus has now been crucified. They're glad he's dead, but they got to get him off the cross because if they don't get him off the cross before sundown, which begins the Sabbath day, then their land will be cursed and they're fearful that somehow God would bring down 
a curse on them, not because they killed the Lord of glory, but because they're not keeping this part of the law to take a condemned man off the cross. And so that's what they wanted to do. Now, you got to understand the Romans typically didn't take people off the cross the same day. In fact, they would let them stay two or three days. So Jesus would have easily been on the cross had he not already died. We know he gave up his spirit. But people who were crucified because of the techniques of torture would purposefully do it in such a way that they wouldn't die instantly, but they might last for a day or two, sometimes up to three days. And then the Romans weren't really even known at that point for burying people. Instead, they would just take them off maybe and throw them to the side and they would be scavenged by birds or they would be eaten by wild dogs. But the Jews had better respect for that for a dead body. And so they would take those bodies and bury them. But for a criminal, they would bury them in a more of a criminal type area, not in some nice tomb. Some say they would take them down even to the Valley of Gehenna, which is where we get the word hell from. And so there is the, there's these Jews that are so interested. This is what I want to point out to you is the fact that they are so hypocritical. They've just lied about Jesus, finding false witnesses. They've condemned him to death. And yet they're all concerned about somehow God might curse them if somehow a body was hanging on the tree and after sundown. And what we see here is that these Jews were more interested in their earthly inheritance than in a heavenly one. They were more interested in their legalism than loving Jesus with all their heart. They were more interested in keeping their old wineskins instead of exchanging them for a new one which is the picture of giving up the old covenant, which is completed perfectly in Christ, and seeing and embracing the new covenant, which Jesus is going to seal with his own blood. And so these Old Testament Jews were unwilling to see the beauty of the new covenant. They were more interested in worshiping their own pious behavior than they were in having their heart of stone removed and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn from this today is don't major on the minors, but major on Christ. Now, every part of the Bible is important. So I don't want to act like there's certain rules, even in the New Testament, that we can ignore. All of it's important. But what I am saying is that isn't it a little hypocritical that these Jews are so interested, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, of tithing dill and mint and cumin. They're so interested in not going into the Gentile Pontius Pilate's house, but they want Jesus condemned. They're so interested in taking this body off the cross and the two thieves off the cross, but they're not interested in the fact that they just murdered the son of God. And what I'm saying is we need to make sure that we don't fall into that same hypocrisy. We need to make sure that we don't fall into that same issue of majoring on the minors where our heart is not even right with God, that we're more concerned about keeping the legality of the law than we are about just brokenness before a holy God, asking God to save our soul, to redeem our life, and give us such a passion for him and such a joy for him that keeping all of the law is not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing to keep God's law. It is never a burden, which means wearing your mask this morning is not really a burden. Now, whether you agree or disagree with our government, certainly you would agree that you ought to submit to our elder team. And our elder team would say that it's important for us to try to wear our masks to the best of our ability. 
Now, I saw a few masks go back up. <laughs> I said that. Everybody's like, Whoa. you know, and what I'm saying is that we let this little thing right here, we let this little thing right here distract us from the main thing. The main thing is we love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength so much that if our government or our elders ask us to wear this little thing for an hour, we'd be willing to do that. Are you going to let a piece of cloth keep you from loving and worshiping Jesus with all your heart? I've been shocked at how many people, even at our church, have been like, well, they don't have a mask on. Well, they have a mask on. Well, they this, this mask, and that's this mask, and should we wear it, or should we not? Do we have to put it on before we get out of the car? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it's like, people, like, chill out. First of all, just chill out. Second of all, just do what you're asked, and see it as an act of worship and obedience to our great God. And at the same time, of course, there's some Christian liberty. I'm going to get some emails. I know it already. I'm getting emails about this one. But of course, there's a little bit of Christian liberty. But I just want us to be careful as a people that we do our best to do what we can to honor the Lord. That's all I'm saying, that we do the best that we can to honor the Lord, mask or no mask. God cares most of all about what's in your heart. And so I want to encourage you in that this morning, if I can. Thank you for just letting me pastor you for a moment, all right? So what we're seeing here is that uh, Jesus needed to be taken down off the cross because that was also part of, the, part of the, uh, the prophecy that's going to be given. As you look at your next blank there, it says his legs were not to be broken. His legs were not to be broken. Another prophecy that's going to be fulfilled here, verse 31, right there in the middle, again says the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might not be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now skip down to verse 36, if you will. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. No one of his bones will be broken. And so late that afternoon, as it's getting closer to evening, which was the beginning of the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath began at sundown, and since the Jews were eager to get Jesus off the cross, they asked Pilate if they had permission to break his legs along with the two thieves. And the breaking of the legs was some, someone that would be hanging on the cross. If they had their legs broken, it would hasten their death. Because the thigh bone, which is the femur, is the biggest bone in the body. And if you were to break the thigh bone, there would be bleeding just from the breaking of that bone. But more importantly than that extra bleeding that would be happening would be the fact that this person on the cross could no longer push up on those legs. If they were broken, they wouldn't have the ability to maybe push up on those legs in order to breathe. And so the way that, that someone would die would be by asphyxiation, which means you can't breathe because they can't pull up or push up anymore because their legs are broken. Their lungs would literally drown in the process and the terrible torture finally would reach its end. And so once Pilate gave permission, the soldiers returned with an iron mallet and they came up to these two thieves on the side and they would take this big iron mallet and go up to the person hanging on the cross and literally crush their femurs. In fact, in 1968, there was some excavations going on in Israel. They found a criminal who had been crucified and both of his femurs were completely shattered, just completely, and a thousand pieces This isn't like one nice little break where it's like, 
I mean, that would be bad enough, right? But this would be a shattering of those bones with this iron mallet. And that's what happened to the robbers. And then they came up to Jesus, but they did not break his legs. Why, you ask? Because they saw that Jesus was already dead. Jesus had already said, it is finished. He had already bowed his head and given up his spirit. He had already said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so Jesus had breathed his last. And some unbelievers have actually invented the idea that Jesus didn't really die, that he only swooned on the cross and then was revived when they placed his body into the cool tomb. But we understand that these Romans are expert executioners, and they killed people for a living, and they knew, even intuitively, that Jesus was already dead. That's why they smashed the legs on the outside first of the two thieves, and then they came to Jesus, and they're like, well, he's already dead. Verse 33 again says, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. I read to you verse 36 to fulfill scripture, that not one of his bones would be broken. Now understand, this is not a coincidence. It's not like, well, Jesus was kind of wimpy, so the other two guys were living longer and they had to kill them, but Jesus just couldn't keep up with it. That's not what happened at all, right? This is, this is a fulfillment of scripture. Speaking of the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 46 says, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall take, excuse me, you shall not take any flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Remember the symbolism here? Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Passover lamb was not to have a single bone broken. Numbers 9, 11 through 12 says this of the Passover lamb, they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Again, there's a special attention played to the fact that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus would not be left on the cross until morning, and that he would not have a single one of his bones broken. Speaking of the Messiah in in Psalm 34, verse 20, it says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And we see uh, these three passages that we just read, Psalm 34, Numbers 9, and Exodus 12 are all prophecies that Jesus would never have a bone broken. So what that means is, is that when Jesus decided to give up his spirit and to die before dusk, he had already given up the ghost. That's literally what it says in the King James Version. If you ever wonder, well, where does that phrase come from when it says he gave up his spirit? Same word for ghost in the, new, in the old King James Version. So he'd already given himself up. This is what we read about in the scripture that Jesus was not literally killed by his crucifiers, he gave up himself, Galatians 2.20. He offered himself up as a ransom, Mark 10.45. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5.2. And what, what an amazing truth this really is to think about that every single part of Jesus's crucifixion, and now we're seeing every part of his death happen exactly the way God planned it. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It should give us greater confidence that God is sovereign over our deaths. If the Lord should tarry, we in this room will all die. Have you ever thought about that? 
You will die one day if the Lord should tarry from the second coming of the rapture, whatever your eschatological view is. You're going to die one day. And when you die, have you ever thought about the fact that just like the day of your birth was ordained, the day of your death is ordained. And every single detail of how you will die and when you will die has already been determined by God. You can't make it happen sooner. You can't make it happen later, no matter how many essential oils you have. All right? You just can't. You're going to die when you're going to die. Now, I think we should be good stewards. I'm all for exercise and eating healthy within reason. All right? But I think that the idea is, is that we can rest today in the fact that our lives are in God's hands. We can rest in his love. We can rest in his care. I don't know about you, but it just kind of takes the fear away. I mean, I've never told my wife this, but occasionally, uh, once in a while, I'll just kind of have a fear, like, if I'm going to die, like, that would be a horrible thing. You ever, had, uh, you ever had that thought somewhere in your life? Maybe you're watching a, a movie. Maybe somebody close to you got diagnosed with, a, uh, with a, uh, a terminal illness, and you're like, oh, my word, what death is real? And what if I die? In fact, I'm not feeling that good right now. I feel this little twinge right here, like something's going on. I'm, I'm, is it all over today? You know, we all feel that, but when I study God's word, it just gives me like security when I think about death. When I think like, oh no, what if I have cancer? What if one of my family members has cancer? What if that phone call because they're late is a call of your family just, you know, got in a car wreck or whatever. We all have that fear at times. But when we think about this passage and we think about God's sovereignty over death, it just kind of helps put my mind at ease. Like, oh, okay, I'm good. God's sovereign over that. Whatever's going to happen, he's completely sovereign over it. Here's what I'm trying to say. God has power over your life and your death, which means this, death is not your enemy, sin is. Death is not your enemy, disobedience is. Death is not your enemy, a rebellious heart is. Death is not your enemy, an idolatrous heart is your enemy. So make sure you're fighting the right enemy, which is sin, not necessarily the fact that one day you will die. In fact, for the Christian, death is not your enemy, but it is your entrance into heaven. It is the gateway to spend the rest of eternity with Jesus Christ, who, by the way, I already told you, is the first fruit, which means he's already been resurrected. We're just following his steps. He died, was resurrected in heaven forever. You're going to die, be resurrected in heaven forever. That's actually a comforting thought. It's still scary when you think of it because, you know, it can be scary. But I'm just saying it should be also comforting. Like, man, I, I'm just going to dwell on the truths of Scripture as I know them. And I'm going to be encouraged by even a passage like this, that even when I die, I know that I'm safe in the arms of God. Well, what if Jesus wasn't really dead, you're asking? Oh, well, he was. The soldiers uh, knew he was dead, but they had a way to check on that as well. Your next blank says his side was to be pierced. So his legs were not to be broken, but his side was to be pierced, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Skip down to verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him and whom they have pierced. And so his side was pierced. This is something that was supposed to happen. It was, it was prophesied. As a trained executioner, one of the soldiers knew that one way to check for death in someone who'd been crucified was to pierce the victim's side and to see what came out. And in this case, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, and the Bible says that blood and water poured out. This was a surefire evidence that Jesus was dead. 
Now, when the heart is pumping, blood is flowing through the circulatory system at its normal viscosity. But when the heart stops beating, the blood and the water begin to separate. Blood, as you know, is about 80% water. The other 20% of your blood is made up of red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. And when there is no circulation in that blood because the heart is no longer pumping, then the solids begin to settle to the bottom. And the water is there on top. And so when the spear went into Jesus' thoracic cavity, when that spear went in, the separation of blood and water had already happened. It could be that Jesus had been dead for several minutes. It could be that he had been dead for up to half an hour. But what we do know is there was already separation that had taken place because there's no heart pumping. And so blood and water poured out immediately. This is what happens after a person dies if they're upright and their thoracic cavity has already been filled with, with, with uh, the suffocation in the way that Jesus died. A lot of fluid in there, but blood as well. And so some people think that the blood and water that poured out of Jesus' side has some symbolic significance. Some say that the blood could be referring to cleansing of the guilt of sin and the water typifies the cleansing from the defilement of sin through the word. Some say the blood points to our justification and the water points to our sanctification. Some people say that the blood points to the juice, the wine in communion, and that the water uh, would point to the fact that we need to be baptized. And so Jesus, somehow there's this symbolic view here of of, of water baptism and taking part in communion. I I don't believe any of those. I, I just think that this is Jesus's death. The whole point in this text isn't to teach communion. It's not to teach baptism. It's not to teach something symbolic. At least we don't see that clearly symbolically implied anywhere else. We just see he's dead. He died and he is dead as he can be. And it was proven. They can't get up. uh, That means they could have, but they didn't get up and check his pulse. So by sticking the spear in his side, the blood and water pour out shows obviously this man is dead. And if you look down at verse 37 again, the, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so this whole piercing, the side thing, was not just a coincidence. This is exactly what God had planned. Jesus' legs would not be broken, but his side would be pierced in order to prove that he had already died. And you can read about that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now in the context of Zechariah that passage that prophecy it's also really a reference to the second coming and he is saying Zechariah in Zechariah 12:10 he's saying that at the second coming Israel will mourn why will they mourn well they're they're going to be broken of their sin they'll finally repent when they look upon Jesus whom they had pierced and crucified. Revelation 1-7 says it this way, behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. And so we're seeing here again and again that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will weep tears of genuine repentance for what they did to their Messiah when he died and he was pierced in such a way that that, uh, that was prophesied about and that we'll see him. You'll see him. 
You remember when Thomas uh, doubted that, that Jesus had been raised from the dead and Jesus shows up, we're going to read about this just in a few weeks, but he put his fingers in his hands and in his what? In his side. And so what we're seeing is that this is evidence of the fact that this piercing took place to prove this exact crucifixion and death of Jesus happened exactly like it happened. Let's move on to our next blank that is death was witnessed. His death was witnessed, verse 35. He who saw it as born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. Now, if you remember from the previous weeks, we've talked about how Jesus' death was witnessed by a lot of people. It was witnessed by the centurion. It was witnessed by the Roman soldiers. It was witnessed by hundreds of bystanders as it was there outside of the city of Jerusalem, but on a highway where they read Jesus, King of the Jews, right? It was also witnessed by Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was witnessed by Simon of Cyrene and his two sons, Rufus and uh, his other son's name was Alexander. It was witnessed by uh, Salome, who was the sister of Mary. It was witnessed by Mary, the wife of Clopas. It was witnessed by uh, Mary Magdalene, and it was also witnessed by John, the author of this gospel. And John says something similar to about this idea of witnessing the death of Jesus in John 21, 24. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and know that his testimony is true. So in other words, because John an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ himself, who was one that Jesus loves, who was the only apostle who was there at the foot of the cross going toe-to-toe with Jesus all the way to his very death. And because he saw that and he stayed there, we can take it to the bank that this is a true occurrence that happened exactly like John records this for us. John bore witness not only about Jesus' death, but also to his resurrection, to all of his life and ministry. And John bare witnesses so that we may know these things are true. In fact, the theme verse for the gospel of John is John 20, verse 31. that says, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Christianity is not just speculation. Christianity and the crucifixion is not something ambiguous. It's not like just a bunch of, a bunch of hoodlums, a bunch of historians, or whoever wrote this story like some fiction novel. The, the crucifixion happened exactly like it happened. And the main takeaway from these verses would be this, Jesus really did die. The Islamic view of Jesus' death is completely different. Islam teaches that Jesus did not die on a cross, but in some other way. In fact, Muslim scholars, have you ever heard this? Mother, Muslim scholars believe that either the crucifixion didn't last long enough for Jesus to actually die, or that there was a lookalike that somehow when Jesus brought the, the cross beam up to the place of crucifixion and laid it down, that the disciples switched Jesus out real quick with someone else who died in his place. Or some of the Muslims actually teach that somehow, kind of like magically, Judas all of a sudden appeared, and it was Judas who died on the cross in Jesus' place. Because it doesn't make sense for the Muslims to see how could Jesus, the prophet, who's claimed to be the son of God, which they don't believe he's divine, but how could he have died on a cross? And so all kinds of people try to explain away the fact that Jesus actually died. But my friends, the Bible could not be more clear. The wages of our sin 
is death. And death has been taught throughout the Bible as the only means by which we could be forgiven. It's this Hebrews 9.22 that says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This means that if Jesus did not die, you could not be forgiven of your sins. This is one of the reasons why Christianity and Muslims don't agree. You know, in all the plurality of the world today, they're like, well, can't they all agree somehow that Allah and, and Elohim, uh, they got, they, somehow it's the same God, and they both believe Jesus is a prophet, so we're not that far apart. Nothing could be further apart than someone who believes that Jesus died in their place and someone who would say that Jesus never died in the place of any sinner. There's nothing that could be more separate than those two religions. And I'm not trying to be mad or, or, or upset about it. I'm just upset about the fact somebody would claim they're the same when they're not. So pick one. Because you can't say that Jesus didn't die on the cross. The Bible couldn't be more clear. And this is evidenced Throughout the whole Bible, God killed an animal in the Garden of Eden to cover Adam and Eve with garments of skin. Jehovah Jireh provided a ram in Genesis 22 that died on that altar that Abraham prepared. The Passover lamb that we've been talking about was killed in Exodus chapter 12. The red heifer was brought to the priest as a sacrifice for purification in Numbers 19. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1:29. And Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the, from the dead, you shall be saved. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ actually died. You want to be forgiven? You want new life? You want to have a new heart? You must believe in the gospel. And part of the gospel message is that Jesus died on a cross. Let's move on to our second major heading, which is a little shorter for our sermon this morning. Now that we've seen the death of Jesus on the cross, let's look at the burial of Jesus in the tomb. You're like, all right, Adam, I believe in the death thing, but I'm not so sure about this whole burial thing. Well, your next blank says, Joseph of Arimathea finally steps up. Verse 38, after these things, what things are we talking about? The crucifixion, the death of Jesus. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Jesus not only exercised complete control over his death, but Jesus exercised complete control over what would happen to his body after his death. Even though his spirit was gone and his body was here, he's still in control. He's in control of what happens to that body for the three days that it's in the grave. And speaking of the death and the burial of Jesus, Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so as mentioned before, the Romans didn't bother to bury everyone that had been crucified. In fact, the Romans normally uh, refused to bury those who had committed sedition 
which would be rebellion against Rome. But the Jews had made this claim that Jesus had, uh, had committed uh, sedition by, by calling himself a king, and so he was a threat to Caesar. But unlike the Romans, the Jews did bury everyone, and so they would have buried uh, Jesus somewhere where they would bury criminals. I mentioned that already. But then all of a sudden, Joseph of Arimathea shows up. Arimathea is a town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea is one of the few minor characters in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, that shows up in all four accounts. And what do we know about him? Matthew 27, 57 says that he was rich. Matthew 15, 43 tells us uh, that he was a respected member of the council. Luke 23, 50 tells us that he was a good and righteous man. And this verse tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, though secretly out of fear for the Jews. So Joseph of Arimathea was rich, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man, and a disciple of Jesus. Now, in this um, account in John, it says that he was a secret disciple, one who secretly feared the Jews. And you might ask, well, why why did he secretly fear the Jews? Well, do you remember uh, what happened to the man born blind after Jesus healed him in John 9? uh, The the, uh, Pharisees got all upset. They wanted to come ask the parents, was he really born blind? How did he uh, become healed? And they said, ask him. And the parents said, ask him, he's of age. And then it says this, John 9, 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And so I think that Joseph of Arimathea is aware of this same uh, persecution that will come upon him as soon as he really stands up for Jesus. I mean, to stand with Christ was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. To acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah was to be persecuted. For some Jews of the first century, this meant that you could lose your job, that you would lose your friends, that you would no longer be accepted in your own Jewish culture. This was a big deal. This was not just an individual decision. This affected everything of your livelihood and for the rest of your life. And so what's going on now with Joseph of Arimathea? Well, there are hints that he's trending towards being more vocal about his faith. Mark 15, 43 tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke 23, 51 says that he did not consent with their decision to crucify Jesus Christ. And at this point, after the death of Jesus, I think Joseph of Arimathea had had enough. He's like, no more hiding in the shadows. No more laying low. No more being a secret disciple. Now, we understand we all mature in our faith on different timetables. I've seen some come to Christ, and they're on fire, and they're unashamed from day one, and they blaze a trail to evangelism to all of their friends, and whenever I see that, I'm just always like, man, that's just so awesome, and I see other people come to Christ who struggle for years about being vocal about their faith. And I'm not saying they're not born again. I'm just saying for some people, they catch on fire right away for their whole life. And for other people, it's got to percolate for a while before it gets hot. And I think that's what's going on with Joseph of Miramathea. Somewhere in this process, he had become a born-again disciple, and he was counting the cost. And at this point, once Jesus was dead, he's like, enough is enough. And now he is going to be courageous. Now he's willing to go to Pilate and to ask for the body. In fact, Mark 15, 43 says that Joseph took 
courage. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is the point where Joseph decided to go public with his devotion to Jesus Christ. Can I just encourage you, if you are that secret disciple, if you think somehow it's cool just to kind of lay low and not say much because it's controversial, because it's difficult, because people see you different than who you really are, can I just encourage you, it's time to come out. Jesus has already died. Joseph of Arimathea is not necessarily a good example from what, when, when he was quiet. He's a good example when he spoke up. And let me just encourage you to speak up. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be afraid. You, you should count the cost. So I'm, I'm for counting the cost. But it doesn't take a lifetime to count the cost. Decide if you're going with Jesus. And if you are, let's get on board. Let's proclaim the truth. Let's be unashamed. Let's be persecuted together. Let's stand together for the cause of Christ. And so Joseph does this. He steps out. The Bible tells us that he bought a linen shroud, Mark 15, 46, wrapped up Jesus, taking him down off the cross, wrapped him in linen, this linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew 27, 60 says that Joseph uh, laid Jesus's body in his own new tomb. Joseph took special care of the body of Jesus. He requested to have the body uh, from Pilate. In this point, Joseph of Arimathea's love for Christ overpowered his fear to be persecuted. He was willing to give up prestige. He was willing to give up power. He was willing to give up position. And at this point, he is going to go with Christ. In fact, check this out. Joseph of Arimathea would rather be with the dead body of Jesus Christ than all the living bodies of the phony Pharisees. He had made his choice. I'm going with the dead because I can trust this guy. Now, he wasn't alone in doing what he was doing. There's another guy similar to him called Nicodemus. Your next blank, Nicodemus comes back. Verses 39 and 40, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, we haven't read about Nicodemus since John 3. He's the one who came to Jesus by night. Jesus talked to him about being born again and how that had to be a special work of the Spirit. It's very likely that Nicodemus actually did become born again at that encounter. Then we read about Nicodemus in John 7, 51, when he says they're about to arrest Jesus. And he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So it might've been a little step that he made right there at the Feast of Booths in John 7. But at that point, Nicodemus planted his foot in the ground and he was definitely tracking with Jesus. And now after Jesus' death, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, cared enough to take the body of Christ down off the cross and to wrap it in special linen with the spices and the myrrh and the aloe. This is a clear sign of loving devotion. In fact, the fact that they had 75 pounds, some translations say 65 pounds, but in fact, they had so much myrrh and aloe, this was fit for a king. 
The Jews did not embalm the dead, but they wrapped them in spices. This myrrh was already given, as you remember, by the, uh, the wise man as a, as a foretelling of the death of Christ. Now Jesus' body is wrapped in myrrh, which is a fragrant, gummy resin, which in a powdered form was mixed with aloes that would be wrapped in the, around the entire body for a good aroma and to preserve the flesh for as long as they could. It's pretty clear even here, that Joseph and Nicodemus don't really expect Jesus to be raised from the dead. Or if they do, it seems like they're preparing for the long haul, which is fine. They, they didn't fully get it, though maybe there was a little hope. Maybe there was a little anticipation that he's coming. We don't know for sure, but we do know they're preparing Jesus for a normal Jewish death, and they honored him big time by putting him in this rich man's tomb, Joseph's own tomb. And that's our next and final blank. They laid Jesus there in the tomb, verses 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, we don't know exactly where this tomb is today. It is thought that it could be there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It could be somewhere else. There is, of course, the garden tomb, which was a tomb there and a garden close to Gordon's Calvary that we discussed a few weeks ago, and that gives you a beautiful idea, at least, of what an ancient tomb would look like. And today, if you've been to Israel or you're planning to go with us next March, we, you have the opportunity to go in this particular garden tomb, which would have had a lot of similarities. No one's saying that for sure it's the exact tomb, but when you're there, it sure feels like it. And there's a stone that you can roll away, duck your head, go into the tomb, and see a little uh, area where a body would be laid. It's pretty fascinating. And, and what, what we're seeing from the biblical account is this was hewn out of a rock, and it was close at hand to where Jesus had died so that they could quickly put him in the tomb before the Sabbath came upon them. So we have Joseph and Nicodemus were eager to get their work done. Remember, it's Friday, the day of preparation for not only the Sabbath, for, for the Passover feast, but guess why else it's important that they get Jesus in the tomb? Because it's another fulfillment of scripture. You guessed it. You guys are smart. All right, so it's another fulfillment of scripture because Jesus had to be in the tomb for how long? Three days and three nights. And as we talked, I think on Easter Sunday, I read that passage to you about Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So will the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, be in the heart of the earth for how long? Three days and three nights. You say, well, how does that work? Friday, it's almost dark. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he rose Sunday morning. That's not three days and three nights. Well, that's just in our Western reckoning of time of 72 hours. In the Jewish reckoning of time, any part of one 24-hour period constituted as a night and day. So since Jesus actually was buried in the tomb, he died and was buried in the tomb before the Sabbath actually came, then that counts as 24 hours of Friday, day and night number one. Then you have Saturday, day and night number two. And then you have Sunday, he rose early in the morning, but it was already on Sunday. So you have day and night number three. So this prophecy was fulfilled if Joseph of Arimathea and if Nicodemus had have drugged their feet, and if they had said, hey, we're going to put him in bed after sunset, then this scripture would not be fulfilled. 
But Joseph of Arimathea, I don't think it's that they knew that, but it just happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. This is exactly what the Bible says. This is exactly what happened. Now, one final thought as we're closing now is this thought about the gospel message that we were talking about a little bit in our introduction. The gospel message is not a message of resurrection only. It's also a message of the death and burial of Jesus. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. So here's the Apostle Paul, years later, talking to the church at Corinth, and he's like, I'm going to tell you guys what the gospel is. This is, this is what he says it is. Verse 2, in which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached, preach to you unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So if somebody ever asks you, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 is where we often go, verses 1 through 4. It's that Christ died and was buried and he was raised from the dead. The gospel is a fact. The gospel is not just something that makes you feel nice when you feel close to God. The gospel is Jesus's life, obviously, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if you're here this morning, I want to invite you to this gospel truth. When people say, hey, I want to preach the good news, or I want to invite you to believe in the gospel of Christ, we're talking about his life. We're talking about his death, that he actually died. We're talking about, according to what we've looked at this morning, that he was buried in that tomb, and that on the third day, he was raised from the dead. If you're here today, and you've never believed in that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I want to invite you this morning. In fact, I want to call you to repent of all of your sin. And I want to call you to repent of all of your doubts. And I want to call you to repent of whatever it is that's hindering you and holding you back from seeing the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice, the fulfillment of all scripture, so that you could be born again. God did all of this for you this morning. You could be a young man or a young woman, or you could be older in your life, but God's calling you on this day to come to him by faith that you would believe in exactly what happened on the cross in Jesus' death, in his burial, and we'll see here in the next week or so in his resurrection because we must be buried with him, Romans 6, 4. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, you must be willing to die in order to truly live. And just as we've seen, as we have seen Jesus completely dead, you must be willing to be completely dead. And the reason there's a lot of fake Christians walking around is they've never completely died. Christians, carnal Christians, if you will, have committed the swoon theory. They haven't come to full death. They were kind of beaten up by their circumstances. They laid real low. Something happened and they kind of got revived and they went on their day. But there was no transformation in the heart. And in order to be truly transformed, not only do you have to believe in Jesus' death factually, 
but by faith you have to come to the death of your own self. And you have to place yourself there at the foot of the cross and say, I'm done. I am done with all that I am. And I completely confess all of my sin. And I renounce it and repent of it and turn from it. And I'm turning to you, Lord. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to fill me with new life. I'm asking you to transform my heart. I'm asking you to give me deeper purpose and meaning for life. And it's all about knowing Jesus and making him known. You must be willing to die in order to truly live. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig in your word this morning. Thank you for the doctrine of the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege this morning that we have to just consider and ponder the beauty of the fulfillment of scripture time and time again that we've seen, not only with the crucifixion, but now with the death and with the burial, and we know the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, may this passage of scripture give us comfort. May it give us conviction. May it make us realize how true it is that we must first fully die in order that we can truly live. And I pray for that soul that's listening this morning here in this place, our own live stream, God, who has never truly died. And they've been scratching their head wondering, why is it that I don't seem to have power over sin? And why is it that I don't seem to have the excitement and the passion that I see in others? And why is it that I keep living my life in such a way that there's no radical transformation? And this morning, God, may, may you open that individual's heart and soul to the fact that we must die, that just as Jesus died, we must die so that we can have new life. And we thank you that the blood and the water poured out. And we thank you that Jesus completely was dead. And we thank you that Jesus was buried in the tomb. And we thank you that on the third day that he rose again. And I pray that it would be because of the life of Jesus that we could have life and that you would breathe into us the transformation of regeneration and of repentance and of faith to believe in you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would be so transformed that we would leave here different this morning, loving our neighbor loving the community where we live, loving the family that you've given us, loving our jobs where we work, loving the opportunity to submit to your law and to do so with a heart of worship and humility and a heart that would be so filled with the glories of Christ that it's a privilege for us to do what you call us to do in your power and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.